Welcome back to the Curbsiders, the internal well, medicine, hello, Matt. the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto here with my co-host, Dr. Stuart Brigham. That's me. And Dr. Paul Williams. All right, guys. How are you? Good. I'm sorry that you guys couldn't be here with me on this episode. You know, actually, Alex Lane did a great job filling in for you, but I, I still feel yeah, you guys... Good. Yeah, she's Yeah, she she did a great job, but I feel like you guys would have had some, some interesting points to add, and I'm okay. sure... I'm sure Stuart would have had several rants uh, to to right. say, so maybe we'll get to those after after the uh, our talk with Sue here. At least I have a strange the... feeling that they'll be edited out, though. <laughs> uh, you know, you never know, Stuart. You never know. At least edited mm. for content. Yeah, it's okay. Hey, uh, Paul, how about a pick of the week? Oh, that's the good stuff right there. <laughs> that is it. Have you have you listened to an episode yet, Paul? <laughs> I I have not. <laughs> Not, but I, I imagine that song is like pumpkin pie for my ears. <laughs> I don't think I, I recommended this one before. Um, I'm going to recommend the 1999 album by the band Self called Breakfast with Girls. It's by a band no one sort of that had really no major singles that were out. So you, you, unless you know them, then you don't know them. Um, but it is a, a near perfect pop album that's um, produced by Matt Mahaffey, who's actually the guiding force behind the band Self, as well as produced by Ken Andrews. And I almost don't want to go on at this point anymore. But it's just an overall brilliant album that I think is underrated and underappreciated. Well, Paul, you're reminding everyone that you're the older one on the show, but uh, it sounds it sounds fantastic. Stuart, did you want to recommend anything? Nope. All right. Earlier this week, we heard from Fatima Syed, who is the chair of the ACP Residents and Fellows Council. And she kind of taught us a little bit about the Affordable Care Act. We talked about how quality is measured in healthcare. We talked a little bit about MACRA and MIPS. On this episode, we spoke with Dr. Sue Bornstein, MD, FACP. She is a board-certified internist, a graduate of the University of Texas at Austin and Texas Tech School of Medicine. She did her internal medicine residency at Baylor University Medical Center in Dallas and practiced in the small group setting in Dallas for 12 years. Since 2008, Sue has been driving a driving force behind the nonprofit Texas Medical Home Initiative. This practitioner-led organization has its vision to lay the groundwork for a medical home for every Texan by 2017. Their work has in- included a patient-centered medical home pilot in North Texas and since 2013 annual statewide conferences in primary care and the health home. Sue has lectured extensively on the patient-centered medical home and primary care transformation, and she is currently serving as regent for the American College of Physicians, the largest medical specialty society in the country. She is a trustee of the Texas Medical Association and serves as a chair for the Health and Public Policy Committee for the ACP. In addition, she previously served as a chief of staff at Baylor University Medical Center in Dallas. We've asked Sue on the show today to discuss a little bit about medical homes. We also go pretty in-depth on macro MIPS and payer reform and and how that might affect us. And it's a really interesting and wide-ranging discussion. I definitely learned a lot from it. And I think this, combined with our discussion with Dr. Syed, uh, are a great introduction to health policy and health advocacy. And I hope you enjoy them as much as we did. This is Dr. Matthew Watto here with my co-host, Dr. 
Alexandra Lane. She is an assistant professor of medicine at Cooper University. She's been on the show a couple times before. Hi, Alex. Hi, Matt. Thank you for coming back on. I'm glad to have you here today helping me with this interview because you know way more on this topic than I do. Maybe. Yeah. Okay. You're being <laughs> modest. That's fine. And with us today is Dr. Sue Bornstein. She is the executive director of the Texas Medical Home Initiative. And we are very excited to have her on the show. Hi, Dr. Bornstein. Hello. And uh, as we were just talking about, we were, after these official introductions, we're just going to refer to everybody by their first name. Sue, the first question that we love to ask people is, if you had to give a one-liner, the kind that we do in the hospital uh, when we're describing patients, how would you describe yourself? Well, I would say that I'm a 60-ish. 60 is the new 40, you know. <laughs> I agree. Uh, I agree. 60-ish year old, uh, multitasker internist, health policy nerd, and mom of two dogs. I, uh, I, I'm an aspiring health policy nerd, I guess. Alex is, I think Alex is probably a health policy nerd, right, Alex? I'm 100% a health policy nerd. <laughs> <laughs> Alex, did you want to ask anything uh, in this getting to know you portion? I always just think it's interesting how people got in, interested in health policy because it's seemingly dense and uninteresting. So I was curious what led you to this path. Sure. Uh, I think that my path really began when I was a practicing general internist in a small private practice and saw firsthand the challenges that were involved in, number one, taking the kind of care of my patients that I wanted to, vis-a-vis um, insurance requirements, et cetera. Uh, and number two, the whole payment structure that I did not really feel was conducive to uh, the the best care that an internist can give their patient. So that's that's really where I saw that I could possibly make a difference. I'm going to ask you some follow up questions on that, but before we get too far into to, into that world, I wanted to just ask you. We we always loved my my two like normal co hosts are not here, and they always like to ask these questions. If you had to recommend a book to the audience, it doesn't have to necessarily be a book related to medicine, but what's a great book you can recommend to our audience? Gosh, you know, this that that may be the hardest question. So I I I thought about this and I'm a real nonfiction person. So I uh I love nonfiction. And I think I don't think you can go wrong reading any of John Krakauer's books. So I think into Thin Air, the about the ill-fated Everest uh, ad adventure a few several years ago. I think that is one of the most riveting books that I've ever read. Uh, I I read that one uh, a while back as well. Yeah, it made me not want to climb Mount Everest. Uh, and and, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, questioning why people were doing that. Right. Yeah, and just the 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 yeah the drive and the determination that people ha have to do something that, like you say, I would never ever think about doing. Maybe that's why I was attracted to it. Just so different mm -hmm. from from my world. Another question that we love to ask people is: Was there some advice that you got either as a learner or a teacher that that you found particularly meaningful that you'd like to share with the audience? Sure, and I I've thought about this a lot as well, and I, mean, I think some of the things that people say are uh, are more obvious than others. For example, it, I think it's a true true statement though. If you listen to the patient, they'll tell you what's wrong with them, right? I mean, I don't know to whom that's attributed, but other the other 
bit of information or a bit of advice that I, I have found very, very important is, I don't know if y'all are familiar with Faith Fitzgerald, um, who's a great, uh, she's a master in the ACP. She's a professor of medicine at UC Davis in California. And she has written extensively about being, uh, what it means to be a physician. And she wrote a great essay called Curiosity. And if you have not read it, I highly recommend it to you. But one of the things that Dr. Fitzgerald said is, it's curiosity that converts strangers into people we can empathize with. And I think to me, that's a very potent statement because if we can, we can take all the histories and physicals in the world, but if we are really not curious about what makes that patient tick, then I think we're, we're all missing out. That is, that's something that lately uh, being an attending, I think you have sometimes a little bit more time, especially in the hospital where I've been spending a lot of time lately you have more time than the residents do and and being able to i i almost always start my line of questioning with who the, wh- who where does that person live what do they do for a living what support what supportive family members do they have exactly. around and i found that uh a it it made it it made me remember the patients better and then yep. and then the other thing was it they they sort of it when I did have to tell them give them hard news or or kind of negotiate with them later on I had built this kind of relationship with them just by showing some interest in in who they were and That's uh, exactly right yeah and then selfishly it it just makes me uh, feel like getting more reward from the care that I'm providing so I I highly recommend that I got I have to check out this Dr Fitzgerald. She sounds no, she's, awesome. She's remarkable. She's a remarkable person. And again, her her all of her articles are in the Annals of Maternal Medicine. But that one in particular is is just very well done. I think you. I think it will resonate with both of y'all. I so moving moving on to the topic of health policy, and this is this is part of our healthcare policy for beginners series. I'm not sure exactly what we're going to call it. I I think a good starting point would be if you could tell us what what. What courses or books or resources did you find helpful when you were getting started that you could recommend to the audience as a starting point? Sure. Well, I think there's there are a number of um, really good sources, and the two things that I that come up on my news feed every day are the Commonwealth Fund and the Kaiser Family Foundation work, and I think that both of those are just very, very well done, very well uh, researched and certainly topical. So I would, I would encourage anybody just to, to sign up, go commonwealthfund.org and sign up for their daily or weekly briefings. Same thing with the Kaiser Family Foundation. Um, and so I think that those are two very good sources and, and they have lots and lots of background information on their websites too, to, to help understand some of the, the basic concepts and then, and then build from there. I'll have to see if they're on Twitter as well. I find that's yeah, a they are they are they okay are. yeah that's a good way for me to at least kind of seeing some of the headlines on Twitter and uh, you f- I find myself reading articles that I wouldn't have other otherwise found so so everyone should add that to their Twitter feed then yes before we kind of delve into into like some of the specifics can you kind of lay out like the major I think at least for me as as someone who's trying to understand this world i wanted to kind of point out who are the major players in this world that are kind of affecting how health how health policy gets administered and and where where does the interest lie can you kind of lay out the landscape for us and the audience sure 
And I think you, in your in your questions that you submitted, I think you pointed out the major players, and those certainly are the physician groups are a major player. And I think that you saw not just physician, but health health professional groups. So so nurses. Uh, um, I think you saw that in the recent, um, the latest uh, in- incarnation of, of healthcare reform. That I, I do think that that physician groups were listened to. So physician groups are very important. The, uh, the hospitals and hospital associations are a very important player. We can we'll talk more about that. I think in the, in the future, the healthcare, the people that pay for healthcare. So the the health care insurers uh, are a major player. Pharma, as you have pointed out, is a major player as well. And then I also think, I think we cannot um, certainly minimize the importance of the consumers or patients, whatever you, whatever term you, you, you choose to use, because I think um, it's pretty apparent that, that consumers of healthcare are more sophisticated, more uh, educated, and are going to be, I don't want to really say demanding because that sort of has a negative connotation, but I think their, their expectations are higher. So I would think, and certainly the federal government is uh, the main really payer for, for how the major payer for healthcare. So those are the major ones that I can think of off the top of my head. What kind of strikes me about this whole thing, it, of course, we know that the patients are supposed to be at the center of all this, and it's and everything is supposed to be done in the patient's interests. But how do you think that actually, in reality, with having all those groups that you just mentioned, like it, are they incentivized to actually put the patient at the center of everything? Uh, um, I think more now than than in the past, perhaps. But, but I do think that that patients or consumers, people, if uh, are, are frequently put in in difficult situations, trying to navigate what is a very complicated uh, and, and in many cases not user friendly healthcare system. So, no, I don't think that as much as we talk about patient centeredness, I don't think that that is a constant attribute. Attribute or a consistent attribute of our healthcare system as it stands now. I think it's improving, but I don't think we're there yet. The Texas Medical Home Initiative, I think that's actually a good place to go next with this because, well, number one, you're the executive director of it and you can tell us all about it. But I think it's also an interesting uh, it, it's an interesting aspect of healthcare, and I do want to talk uh, about repeal and replace and payer reform and things like that on this episode, but I think that would be good if you could at first lay out what is a medical home and maybe speak about the Texas Medical Home Initiative a little bit. Sure. Well, um, medical home, and so if you if you if you Google medical home and you say define medical home, you will find many many different uh, versions of a definition. Now, I will say that most of them do have uh, a fair amount of commonality and common common uh, philosophies, but. I think in a general sense, medical home, patient-centered medical home is a, it's a model of primary care that is, it's intended to be patient-centered, and we can talk really about what that means, comprehensive, so um, really want to be able to, to look at the totality of our, of our patients and, and to the best of our ability, serve, meet all the needs that we can uh, 
uh, for them, team-based. And I think this is one of the most important parts of, of the medical home, and that is historically physicians have been um, really lone actors in a lot of ways. There's actually a great article that uh, was in the American Academy of Family Physicians Journal. It was called The Myth of the Lone Physician. And there's uh, a great characterization of you know, physicians have been the, the ones who have had the knowledge and the experience, but also the burden really of caring for uh, the benefits and the burden of caring for patients. And now, you know, we, we cannot be the only one, nor should we be the only one. So the, the evolution, the development of effective teams is cr- critical to this concept. Care coordination. Another thing I mentioned earlier about the, the complicated healthcare system where there are multiple entities, whether it's a hospital, it's a laboratory, it's a doctor's office that don't always communicate uh, as they should. So medical home really is, is asked to coordinate that care. Another, I think one of the most important aspects of medical home is, is accessibility. And so, and by that, I mean, uh, not just nine to five, the doctor's here to see you from nine to 12 and one to five, mm-hmm. but, but expanded access. So that could be through electronic visits. That could be through group visits, if appropriate, that can be longer extended hours uh, during the, during the week and on the weekends um, can be phone calls. So, so you, we asked, we talked a little bit earlier about consumers and this is one of the things that I think consumers are simply not going to accept the traditional, nor should they, in my opinion, the traditional physician-centered office, quality and safety. So so medical homes are, are, are expected to have rigorous quality uh, measurement uh, in, in place and also safety. So those are, the, I think, the top characteristics of a medical home. And you can already tell that it's, 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 it's tough to give, uh, what, for me anyway, it's tough to give a one to two minute elevator speech about, about what a medical home is. But it's really, another way to put it, I guess, it's, it's a philosophy of, of healthcare care uh, delivery that really encourages clinicians and care teams to meet patients where they are and from the most simple issue to the most complex medical condition. So that's another way maybe of looking at it. I guess my my follow-up to that is kind of how, how did the patient-centered medical home uh, as a movement kind of rise up and and all the things that you're saying, those are things that I want to be in every medical practice. And, you know, I guess my question is, what is the, is this the push to get every practice to operate like this? And we had to show that it works and innovate versus why didn't we just push forward with every practice operating like this? And I think that's that's a very appropriate and and important question. And so I think in order to answer that, though, I think we need to step back a a little bit and say, so I think about my my father, who was a general internist back in the late 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and yes, into the 90s, (laughs) a a long and very productive life. But I think about my my dad and and I think, so when my father opened his general internal medicine office, did he say, gosh, I wonder what model of care I'm going to use? No, he didn't say that because this is what you did. You open your office, you saw patients, and that's what you did. You, you saw them in the, in, the, in the office, you saw them in the hospital. I think a number of things have happened. One of which is, we all know this, I think, in, and I'm using my dad for an example, in his early days of practice, Think about the. There were not that many chronic illnesses because if people contracted 
diabetes or heart failure or think you know things like that they may probably didn't live that long so i think the whole advent of chronic care and chronic conditions is a relatively recent thing and i would submit to you that our uh, our historic model of of what we call transactional care by that i mean if if you have alex you have an acute problem you come to see me and i t- treat you in whatever fashion and i send you on your way and i don't really think about you until the next time you come to me with something acute that is the sort of historical model of medical of a medical a primary care anyway and we again we know that we have lots and lots of chronic care issues to deal with we have preventive health issues to deal with again we have people we need mammograms we need immunizations we need colonoscopies so so medical care is more complex that's one thing and again i i, I said this and i'm, I'm i am going to say it and it may be a little controversial mm-hmm. but i do think that historically medical practices have been physician centric right i mean they have right? Yes. The physician's schedule has really dictated what the practice is. And I just, that is, that's just not going to work from, from now on. And I also think the, one of the other um, catalysts for this was the, I, I mentioned this also, the, comp- the incredible complexity of healthcare. So if, if you or your grandmother, or grandfather, or elder member of your family has had any kind of hospitalization or acute care type issues, and then they have a transition in care, let's say they go from a, a from an acute care hospital to a, a nursing facility or something like that. We all know that transitions are difficult. And, and where is the primary care role in that? So I think, again, that medical home has to really be the quarterback. They have to really be the one that is that is saying, okay, this person was discharged. What happened? What happened to that person? What treatments did they get? What studies did they get? What drugs are they on? So the coordination of care and the communication among um, specialists and facilities is crucial. And the, the hope is that by having this structure, that that is built into the medical home. I was looking on health affairs, trying mm-hmm. to prep for this and trying to find some of the evidence behind patient-centered medical homes. One of the recent articles I saw pop up was that they they saw less less money was spent on inpatient or urgent visits by uh, I think it was inpatient acute admissions was it, was what they were saying less money was spent on those by having patients be part of a patient-centered medical home. Is there what's the evidence base like looking? Because I I find that if you're if you're trying to get some of these major groups like uh, the the insurance payers or the hospitals to be on board for this, they're going to want to know how is that going to save money or make them money. I imagine. Is there evidence that patient centered medical home is is saving them money or making anybody extra money? I think generally, yes. And you mentioned another one of my sources that I didn't mention, and that's Health Affairs. It's incredible, mm-hmm. incredible journey. And they have a great blog, too, uh, where they have daily uh, updates. So, so yes, I think um, if you look now, it's interesting because I've been working on the medical home since 2008. Mm-hmm. And when I, when I would give a talk to a group in 2009, 10, it would not necessarily be a real long talk because there wasn't a whole lot of data, but it's really quite remarkable as an aside <clears throat> that in nine, 10 years, the, the, the magnitude, the rapidity with which this model has been implemented. Now, having said that, it has been implemented in different ways in different places in practices that are at different stages of, of their own development. So, so 
the point I think of saying that is it's not as if we start, and Alex, I think you alluded to this, it's not as if we start de novo and then we build a new clinic and we say, this clinic is going to become a patient-centered medical home. That in some way would be easier, I think, than to retrofit, if you will, an existing practice and, and, and change practices and policies and roles and responsibilities that have been in place for before. So, so there is no such thing as a typical, uh, typical primary care uh, practice. Having said that, yes, I think there are multiple uh, good studies that are showing that for sure, one of the most replicated findings is that uh, patients that are attributed to a, to a medical home do go to the emergency department mu- with much less frequency than those who are not. And those are for things th- that we call ambulatory care sensitive conditions. And let me just define that. Mm-hmm. And those are things like diabetes, congestive heart failure, and asthma are the three that come to my mind. And then the, 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 implication uh, is those are conditions that can be treated in an ambulatory setting more appropriately than in a a hospital or an ER. So ER visits for those kind of conditions had, I would say, typically in the 10 to 20 percent decrease range for most studies. So that's important. You also said, Matt, that yes, hospitalizations for those similar types of conditions have also decreased. Um, and there is evidence, um, probably the most, um, uh, the best longstanding example of this is in Michigan. Michigan uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield is the predominant payer up there. And they, for, I don't know, eight or nine years have, have incorporated and medical homes into their, into their network and have given them um, help to, to make the transformation. And they have very good data that shows that the, the cost per member per month is decreased significantly. And so um, in a, it, it, a lot of it depends on how, how it is studied. The other thing is, and Alex, I think you will um, nod your head to this, I think one of the things the evidence is showing pretty clearly is that the more bang for your buck is going to be from the sicker patients. So if you're a 25-year-old healthy person, um, you're not really going to necessarily need all the care coordination and other, other bells and whistles of a medical home. But if you have chronic conditions and you're one of the super utilizers as we talked about earlier, that is where we really find the the benefits both financially and in terms of quality outcomes and quality of life. So I think it's it's important to focus on the people who for whom this this intensive type of intervention is is the most valuable. And I think that just to remind the listeners um, why that matters so much. Obviously, this is my area of interest, but when you look just at Medicaid dollars alone, 5%, the top 5% of Medicaid users account for 49 to 50% of healthcare dollars. So that's just the reminder right. of why this is so critically important. And the other thing that I wanted to um, mention was I actually was reading your blog, Sue, um, oh. in anticipation of this. And one of the things I thought was really interesting was that you were saying that the evidence really shows that the longer the 
the patient-centered yes. medical home has been in existence, the better the outcomes are, which makes logical sense. But I think it's important to point out that almost like you were saying, if you could start de novo, it would make sense. But obviously during that transition period, yes. there are going to be hurdles and there are going to be um, new ways of doing things that will be uncomfortable. And so I think that's important too, because I remember a study came out maybe four or five years ago that she was was saying that the evidence wasn't great for patient-centered medical homes, and I think it was just too soon. And now we're seeing as it's been nine, 10 years of data, the outcomes are really showing that improvement. So I think that's just another thing kind of about innovation in general, that when we expect outcomes so to be so fast, that's when we're using new models of care, that's not necessarily realistic expectation. I, I'm so glad you said that, and it is very true. And unfortunately, I think the the timeline for uh, a lot of payers and healthcare systems that are that are funding this kind of transformation work, their their timeline is shorter. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> if, if if we don't see major improvement in one to two years, then people get a little bit antsy about it. But I think you're exactly right. And and the things that I've read, and again, this is this I would say is more of an antidote. It's probably four to five years is really when you start to see three to five years. Let's say is when you really start to see major improvements um, in care. But thanks for for saying that because it's very important. The next the next place I wanted to take this talk. There's macro and MIPS. They're terms I've seen in the news. I I somewhat understand what they are, but maybe you could talk about those a little bit and about, uh, I think they're related to payer reform. And and how do you think that might affect things going forward? Well, it's... I think significantly. So MACRA, which is probably better now called um, QPP, Quality Payment Program. So just brief overview of how we got here. This is the biggest federal overhaul of physician payment probably in anybody, in any of of my contemporaries' um, lifespan. And why this came about was... um, before we had macro, which is, I believe, 2015 it was passed, the Medicare payments to physicians had, uh, the way that they were calculated and adjusted was through the um, much uh, maligned and not liked sustainable growth rate formula. So this was the sustainable growth rate. And this was a fairly convoluted um, way of um, adjusting physician payment, and it actually had to do the more the more there was utilization of Medicare dollars, the less the payment uh, was. Now the problem with that was this is a very big political hot potato, and every year when it when it would come time to to pass to re, redo the SGR. Uh, all the all the physician groups would come together, the AMA and the American College of Physicians, the family docs would come together and say, no, you can't cut. And, and it would be a cut of eight, five, eight, 10, 15 percent. And at the last minute, there would be, you know, they were about to fall off the cliff and the Congress would patch. They would do a patch. I think we had something like 14 patches <laughs> during the time. Yeah. During the time of the sustainable growth rate. And and that is just not that's not a way to run a practice. So, so if I'm in a practice and I don't, and I think I'm not going to get an, an increase, but I may very well get a decrease. Well, how can I plan for my practice? How can I hire someone or, or upgrade my electronic health record? So anyway, if, if you talk about advocacy, 
I will say that in my professional lifetime, being part of the American College of Physicians um, advocacy and just being a member, this was one of our successes. It took a long time. And I think that anybody that is interested in advocacy needs to realize that this is not most of these big policy changes take time. But through persistence and through collaboration, the SGR went away. And so what we have in its place is this new system. And and underlying it is is the Medicare's commitment to, to moving away from, from volume-based care. So Medicare historically has, if a physician submits a claim for something, they pay it. And so there's clearly was not really any incentive to uh, to to emphasize value uh, necessarily over volume, but this is going to, we believe it's going to change that. And I just wanted to um, jump in and for a couple of basics that I think kind of help the framework. One, MACRA stands for Medicare Access and CHIP Reauthorization Act. Right. Just right. that's the what it stands for. Thank and you. Then, <laughs> and then, so basically the point of it is to change from a volume-based system to a value-based system. Right. And there's two different tracks. And the reason there are two different tracks is one is MIPS. And, and like Sue said, that's going to be the one that almost everybody falls into. And then the second one is an alternative payment model. Right. And that is to really promote innovation. So this is yep. high risk, high reward. Um, exactly. There's a so downside. Downside. There's a it. downside. Yep. Whereas in MIPS, you don't take the downside. Um, so you, but but you won't make as much basically. So in the, in the alternate payment model, the APMs, you take on more risk by doing more innovation, but if you don't meet your metrics, you're going to, you're going to take a bigger hit. If you do meet them, you're going to get a larger reward. And so it's trying, I think part of, um, the exciting thing about MACRA is that it is looking at how can we innovate to reduce healthcare costs, um, and also recognize physicians, not just for volume, but for value, which I think physicians have been clamoring for, for a quite long time. And then the final part that I just wanted to add was, you know, we've seen this huge, at least from my perspective, rise in not just patient settled medical homes, but accountable care organizations. And just to define that for people, that's basically um, taking, uh, the point is to take a set of patients and lower the total cost of care for all the patients in the group. And it's typically a physician-based model where the physicians kind of are the owners of the accountable care organizations. They don't have to be, that's the typical model. And one of the reasons for the rise in this is because being an ACO kind of gets you a fair amount of points in in the MIPS model. So it is beneficial for organizations to be an accountable care organizations in terms of reporting measures and also in terms of the ability to recoup money from this new system. Exactly. You said it much better than I could have. <laughs> and and I, I'm glad you brought up the APM, uh, which is Alex said, the advanced practice model. And those are... Um, that it's as, as she said, it's a much probably going to be a much smaller uh, percentage of, of people that are involved in macro. I wanted to try to make sure as someone who has a, a like a loose grasp on this whole thing, I wanted to try to make sure. So I've I've been told that and to try to make an analogy, uh, California is is like is a big state when in and follow me here. 
with automobiles, they have very strict emission standards in California. And for car companies, it's easiest to just make all their vehicles to California standards since it's one of the biggest purchasers of automobiles in the U.S. So Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services is, to my understanding, the largest healthcare insurer uh, right. in the in the country. So by them putting in this payer reform, it it may generate a, a, like I guess it's going to affect the most people, and then maybe it'll spread to the private insurance industry too. I I don't think anyone I don't think either of you made made that point, but is that is that something that you think might happen out of this? Yes, definitely. And as you said, um, CMS is the biggest payer for um, for healthcare in this in this country. And yes, it is. T- it is frequently happens that the other payers, the private payers, uh, look to see how how this is going with with um, Medicare and or Medicaid, and then they may adopt the same um, policies. Now they don't have to, but they may adopt the same policy. So yes, it's very possible that in the next several years, depending on how this rollout goes, I think that the the other insurers may get on board with this kind of a program. So that's correct. I I just I guess my my question here is. With with MACRA and and uh, MIPS or what we're calling, you said QPP is the new mm-hmm. is kind of the new terminology. I, I heard physicians saying this is too complicated for our practices to implement. Is it is it practical for? Is it is? I guess there's going to be a lot of growing pains, is what I was hearing. So can you comment on that and and how how that's going to affect physician primary care docs and patients? Yes. And I think I certainly have heard the same things that you have heard. And I also think that this is the good part of this. I I do think that the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services has heard that as well. Mm -hmm. And I have to brag a little bit on the American (laughs) College of Physicians um, and their input. I think we wrote a 30 some odd page letter to to CMS about this, outlining our concerns and and in addition, offering suggestions. But so it is, it's a different way of, of looking at things. And so if you don't report something, one thing in 2017, you will be penalized, mm-hmm. but you only have to report one thing. The actual payment structure doesn't start until 2019, but Medicare is kind of in a two year cycle. Um, so it is, so for some, for, for practices that have been involved in a medical home, then this is not necessarily anything that difficult for them. Or if they are in, for example, if they're in an accountable care organization, then this, these are things that they're already doing. But I think that for the, for, for the, for typical community-based, um, physician out there, uh, they are a lot of them scratching their heads. Now, Medicare did give a dispensation and kind of an exclusion to this, and I forget the exact number, but if you have less than a certain amount of your revenue that comes from Medicare patients, then you don't have to participate. And um, they also have eased the the reporting requirements where they call it, you have more time to ease into these things. So it is a very different way of providing care well, hopefully not providing care, but it's a very different way of reporting about care and being paid. And the other part about mixed MIPS and macro that is very different is you're compared to other providers. 
Mm-hmm. Now, in in historical terms, it didn't matter if you, you know, it, it really didn't matter what your peers were were getting paid or char- for their, but you are going to be compared. So if you are, uh, if you're not, if you're not reporting that you're practicing uh, within certain parameters, then you actually will be penalized compared to your peers. That's something new and something different. Can you can you give just a kind of a, an example of like would it be something like hypertension or A1Cs or how many COPD or CHF exacerbations your patients have is it, is that the kind of quality measures that they're going to be sure. looking at they're, yeah they they are measures that are that have been around so they're they're sort of um, NQF national quality forum type measures about um, hemoglobin A1Cs less than a number or, or higher than a number but yes or people that have uh, adults that have had uh, immunizations etc so I don't think they're any kind of really novel thing um, and and if people have been surveyed by health insurers, which which all uh, people have to uh, been audited. These are the kinds of uh, these are typically the kinds of um, measures that people should be used to reporting on. I I did I did have on the agenda. I wanted to talk a little bit about repeal and replace. I feel like we've had a really great discussion so far about how this is affecting primary care with our discussion of medical homes and ACOs and the the payer reform. Um, I'm not sure that we have time to go to go fully into it, but repeal and replace. How how does that how uh, Sue? How do you see that mm-hmm. going along with some of the concepts that we've talked about so far today? How is that going to affect it? Well, I mean, it's obviously kind of a day day to day. Yeah, <laughs> this has been this has been just a wild ride. I right. mean, the the last time, and then this week. Um, and again, I, I have to feel I have to feel really good and sort of buoyed about the fact that I think the the Congress listened to the so this this was rather unusual. Just just for an example, there was a there was a letter um, that was written to to Congress. I think it was this week. This was from the American Academy of Family Physicians, the American Hospital Association, America Health Insurance Plans. American Medical Association and uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield Association. Those now those are odd bedfellows in, in many yeah, ways. You, yeah. you, re- you rarely see those <laughs> those entities coming together. But they wrote a, a pretty compelling um, letter to Congress that basically this was before the 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 bill the Graham Cassidy bill was was uh, withdrawn. But um, so I I've, I rarely have seen the the medical cons- universe, if you will, galvanized like this. Now and now each of them has their own. Obviously, they have their own reasons for doing that. But um, I feel that uh, I'm, I'm encouraged. I think that uh, we may see some bipartisanship. Um, so I, I do, I think that there, one of the questions you uh, is, is why do, why do health, health insurance premiums keep going up? Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think there's a couple reasons for that. One is there's so much uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, look at what we've been through for the last six weeks or so, two months. Health insurers just they don't know which way to go. They don't know if they're going to have a market, if there's going to be subsidies. They don't know what's going to happen. So I think the the natural response to that is increased premiums. So I'm hoping that um, when things are settled down a little bit, that that hopefully the the markets will stabilize a little bit. I mean, um, that's my expectation. I think one of the big concerns and 
if if I can talk a little bit is is for hospitals. Can mm-hmm. I can I talk yeah, about that? Yeah, please. Please do. And this is something that I think people if if you haven't worked in a hospital or you haven't been part of the of a, a governing structure of a, a hospital, you may not be aware of. And that is um the hospitals are in a very they're in a, a really tough position, especially the ones that uh, deliver a lot of care to um, uninsured and underinsured people. And and I don't want to go too much into the weeds about this because it's easy to do that. But basically, hospitals have been getting um, what is called uh, disproportionate share hospital money. They've getting, they get those that care for, um, as I mentioned, uninsured, underinsured people, have they get essentially a, a payback from the federal government for doing that to help cover their costs? So here's the problem with that. Part of the Affordable Care Act said, okay, we're going to expand Medicaid, right? Medicaid is going to be expanded across the board, and so therefore, we're going to reduce the amount of payments, these disproportionate share payments that hospitals get, because everybody's going to be covered by Medicaid. Okay, so you with me so far? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now you remember that in 2012, the Supreme Court really threw a wrench into that and said, no, Medicaid expansion could be decided by each state. So now you have the clock ticking, these big, big cuts. This is a $12 billion program. These cuts are scheduled to take effect by October 1st. And so hospitals especially those that are safety net and those that are, again, in urban areas and uh, probably a lot of teaching hospitals mm-hmm. are really facing a very difficult time. And so um, I, I think it's, you know, with, with consolidations of hospitals and, and you look how they expand, et cetera, et cetera, it's easy to just say, well, you know, those are the hospitals, but they're, they're in a tough position. And it, it was through a series of, um, I think, unexpected events that that happened. So that's yeah. I had no idea that was happening. That's very uh, one of our co-hosts. Paul, well, and this I don't know if Cooper is one of those hospitals, Alex, but one of our normal co-hosts, Paul Williams, is at um, is at a hospital that's a safety net hospital here in Philadelphia, and I imagine that that kind of thing could affect. Um, oh yeah. But I guess you're saying it depends on if you're one of the states that did put in the that did enact the Medicaid. Um, yes, then you still, you, yeah, if you enacted Medicaid, then you, you will be to some extent protected by this. But for example, in my state, mm-hmm. which is, uh, as you know, we're not proud of this fact, we still have the highest, um, number of uninsured patients, nor, nor did we expand Medicaid. So our, our hospitals are going to really be in a, a very precarious position. Um, and, uh, so Congress needs to act quickly about that and hopefully they will because, yeah, I hate to think about what would happen if they don't. I think we should end on a on a higher note than this. Uh, <laughs> a somewhat sorry. No, no, that's okay. But I think uh, I would love if you would give us a couple take home points for the audience. Uh, we've we've had a great. I think we've had a great conversation here, and and I I want I want I'm going to get out feedback from the audience. Hopefully, they'll like these kind of episodes because I'm really learning a lot from this, and we can do some more of these in the future. I think we, I think that we're in a, a, a really an unprecedented era where um, I think people that there's a lot of um, interest. There's a lot more ground level support for changes in our healthcare system that would 
um, that would enhance access to care and would enhance quality of care, decrease the overall cost. And the other thing that we really didn't talk about, but one of the one of the main reasons that I have been doing this work is to improve the life and outlook for physicians. Um, primary care medicine in general is it's it's it can be a challenging profession, and so. I think that these kinds of changes, whether it's the medical home or whether it's the, the intensivist model that Alan's talking about, I think that when, when we institute a team-based care and, and some of the, the, the uh, non-physician requiring tasks are, are, are um, removed from physicians, I think physicians, physicians will be happier and they can do the things that they love to do, which is to take care of patients. And so um, that's, I, I, am, I am hopeful and I'm optimistic that we're going to end up with a much better system in the future. Great. That is a, a nice positive note to end on. Thank you. <laughs> we, hey, I'm, a, I'm an eternal optimist. What can I say? Yeah. yeah. All right. Alex, uh, thank you uh, so much for taking time out of your work day to do this. And, and same to you, Sue. This was awesome. I, I hope you had fun. Right. This is. I loved it. Are you kidding? Yeah. I love this. <laughs> This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. You can also sign up for our weekly mailing list where you'll receive a PDF copy of our wonderfully done show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. And we're committed to providing you with high value, practice changing knowledge, so we need your input. Send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. Did you get a haircut there, Paul? I did not. <laughs> Good talk. <laughs> <laughs> and this is uh, Stuart, Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. And good night. That's the good stuff right there. That is it.